Hey, hello and howdy. I am a novelist and the reluctant book marketer. My guest on today's show is the Nebraska state poet, author of such collections as The Baby That Ate Cincinnati, and most recently, At the Corner of Fantasy and Maine, Disneyland, Midlife, and Churros. I honestly didn't give him enough credit throughout the episode on how amazing his titles are. They in themselves are poetic and evocative. This interview reminded me in many ways of where the gap is in academia, writing, and making a career out of what we're doing as writers and artists, poets, artists, novelists. Schools are doing a disservice to their students when they admit them into programs of learning, but don't teach them how to make their writing a business. There's no excuse for any school in America to admit a student into its program and not have classes to teach us how to market our work so that we can move on from here with more options than just going right back into the bucket to teach more students to go right back into the bucket to teach more students to go right back into the bucket. So I hope that this podcast episode will be a voice among many that calls for some change in the academic world. You see it in many other subjects. Medicine prepares the students to go on to lucrative careers as nurses and doctors. I know that there's some issues with veterinary medicine, but generally speaking, if you take a course in college as an engineer, you can get a job in engineering. Not teaching engineering, which please You'll hear in the episode, I have huge issues with the slave labor that is adjuncting in a college. However, there should be more opportunities than going back into the bucket to teach after you finish with a degree. So while it's amazing that an MFA, Masters of Fine Arts, for any kind of writing is a terminal degree, meaning you can teach after you hold that certificate, it's nothing to be proud of that the only accomplishment you can claim after graduating with an MFA is the ability to teach more college students. It's not sustainable. What is sustainable is teaching the writers and authors who go through these programs how to sell their books. So there should be more courses that make us more comfortable. I should not have to have a podcast to tell writers who come out of a master's degree how to sell their books. Anyway, you're not going to hear a ton about this point of view. It's just something I've been reflecting on after I spoke to Matt, and I wanted to air my grievance and hopefully start a conversation with you. If you're angry with me right now about saying such a thing, feel free to email me, jodyjsperling at gmail.com. I've had an opportunity to hear from a number of listeners recently about a, a wide variety of things, and I'm really enjoying the correspondence. So you're not bugging me if you shoot me an email. I'd love to talk with you. Heck, it might even stimulate a future podcast episode about something we discuss. So if you want something that you're interested in to be a subject on the podcast, just boom, reach out to me. Thank you so much for listening each week. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the Nebraska State Poet, Matt Mason. 
Hey, I'm the Reluctant Book Marketer, and I've got just one question for you. Do you see your novel as a million-dollar asset? Because if you don't, and you want to, you're in the right place. This is the only show for novelists who want to shift their mindset away from fear and toward abundance. Because you can sell more books than you ever dreamed when you believe in what you're doing. Well, it's, it's the kind of thing, because poetry books aren't going to fly off the shelves just on their own. Um, for the most part, you sell a poetry book at a reading, and otherwise, you know, they'll sit on a shelf at Barnes & Noble forever, unless you do a reading at that Barnes & Noble. <laughs> so that's kind of a big thing that matters in selling poetry. So you've got to get out there, you've got to do readings, you get just have to get your poems in front of an audience and you have to deliver them well. And that's a tough thing with fiction. I think fiction is, you know, even a, a short story is still longer than most poems. Um, and you've got to keep an audience for a certain amount of time um, and keep them entertained and keep them interested. Like with poetry, if you got a, if you have a poem that's not connecting with an audience, you're reading another poem in two minutes. So um, you're not going to lose a crowd. Uh, but if, if you're stuck in the middle of a longer piece of fiction, man, uh, <laughs> I, I feel for you. Yeah. And so I love slam poetry because it, it emphasizes the connection to an audience by performance, by delivery. And, you know, I, I'm a little bit theatrical. I was a class clown. So that has helped me uh, in my poetry career, thankfully. But also you see folks like Ted Kuzer, you know, he was the United States Poet Laureate. He's, I don't know how old he is. He's in the 70s or 80s. Um, but he delivers conversationally um, and beautifully without doing the yelling and then dancing around on stage that you can see at a poetry slam. But it, yeah. it's still working on What's the most effective way to deliver your work to an audience? The audience has one chance to understand it, to get into it. And so you have to, you know, practice that, do a little acting, do whatever it takes to make it come alive for them. I really like the, the point that you're making about sort of being who you are and still maybe having to come out of your comfort zone. You didn't necessarily say that, but standing on stage is almost nobody's natural <laughs> habitat. <laughs> so you, you have to do something that stretches you, but at the same time, embrace who you are. Ted Kuzer, he is fortunate that his poems are supremely relatable to blue collar type people. You can be a, an auto mechanic who has a high school diploma and no further, and you can pick up a book of his poems, like his, his postcards to Jim Harrison, and immediately you get the context. It's like a tiny little story with a beautiful revelation versus yeah. uh, like Ezra Pound is going to be so much more complex. He's going to have to rely on some, some huge presence, which he did well, but he has to rely on his presence to draw in people who maybe are going to be a little less anchored when they sit down yeah. and read. Um, so you mentioned being yeah. the class clown. So you're kind of doing some of that naturally. How much are you thinking about the performance element? Obviously a lot with slam, but I mean, talk to me about that. Yeah, I, I think it's, 
it is something that I really have to plan for. It's it's about when you get on stage, it's not so much for me, it's not so much concentrating on performing, but kind of concentrating on not using the normal dampers of, you know, when I get on stage, I want to channel the energy I had when I was writing that poem. Hmm. Uh, but you get in front of an audience and that can be difficult. Uh, you, you know, you, there's those poet voices that just come out sometimes when you're on stage reading. It's like, and here's the poem I'm reading. Here's the rhythm it falls in. And it's like, no, don't do that. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's kind of letting, not letting the the audience scare you into diminishing what you've written. Because again, you've got one chance to get that across and mm-hmm. you've got to use the emotion you had when you wrote it um, and that you tried to put into the poem and just make sure and not get in your own way by quieting down or, or finding some artificial rhythm for it. It's just like, no, this is a, this is a conversation with the audience. Um, That's, that's kind of how I look at it. So it's not as much about concentrating on acting. It's just concentrating on not, not acting. Yeah. I completely understand. I talk to a lot of people who are frustrated with their, their book sales and not getting their book into enough people's hands and saying that the power of it is that you have to be yourself and you have to get across the message that you actually wanted to put out there. And we go into this place where we suddenly feel like we have to be salespeople uh, if, if we want to move copies of our book. And that makes us do weird things. There's also this thing known as the poet's voice. And I'm curious where that started. What is it? And is that actually part of the salesperson sabotaging him or herself? Yeah, I, I think it's, it, it is an artificial voice that creeps into poetry because it's what we're kind of taught a poem is supposed to sound like so if we don't you know if we don't know or don't trust in ourselves well enough it's like all right the audience may not connect with this but there's this voice i can use that is what a poem is supposed to sound like And, and i think you know popular authors can get away with that because uh, they've got readers already, but anybody else, it's it's one of those weird things. And it, as much as I've done readings, as much as I practice, every now and then I find myself kind of in that. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, just depends how deep you go into it. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's weird. It feels like it gives you credibility with an audience because they're sitting there going, "Oh, this is a poem." I get <laughs> yeah. And because uh, I think if you're too con, God, it's poetry is so weird. Audience <laughs> expectations of poetry have just skewed things horribly. Um, yeah. and, and so there are times when I'm on stage and it's like, is this too conversational? Will they recognize mm. this as poetry? Will they respect this as poetry mm. if it doesn't sound like they're, you know, their preconceptions of what a poem is supposed to be? So I don't know. You can, you can overthink it to death, but mostly it's just about bringing your, your writing to life for the audience and figuring out the best way to do that. That's such a powerful question. Will people respect this if, and and recognize it and give it the kind of authority that you want it to. 
And that is really true. I find it to be more talked about in academic circles necessarily than if I'm talking with, um, you know, the average Stephen King reader about authority. But I even, I think that as you watch Stephen King go through his career, he bristled a little bit. He was like, listen, I am actually trying to to tackle really big themes and messages with my work. I'm not just trying to scare you. I'm trying to scare you for a reason. And I think that you're talking about that with poetry is you're trying to move somebody to an emotion and knowing that you failed if you don't take them to that emotional place is really challenging. It's funny that this is tied up in the whole marketing process. Every person at your reading that you get to feel the emotion that you're trying to get them to feel is almost guaranteed by your book. Uh, and, and it's like, you could look at your, your book table at that reading. And if there's 20 people lined up there, you had a great night. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. And do you use that at all to inform your creative process? Do you see that people relate to a poem and, and then use it as a way to like open the door? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, it, it, definitely informs when I'm putting a book together, what poems I'll put into that book. Um, you know, you want the poems that, you know, maybe they were, so with, with poems, you've, you've got a lot of options, you know, in, in a book of poems, you'll have 50 poems. Um, and which is, you know, radically different from, a, from most fiction writers. And so, I'm looking for, you know, oh, this poem was published in a prestigious place, or this was published in the New York Times, I'll put it in, it gives credibility, and it, you know, hopefully it's a good poem. Yeah. Um, and then others that may have not, may not have been published any in, in a big place, but when I read them, they were, you know, audiences respond. So it it informs kind of what I try to fit into a collection of poems, uh, at least somewhat. Um, yeah, it's just finding those poems that when you do them, perform them at a reading, people respond to, and they'll hopefully want to buy the book because of that, yeah. and hopefully come across other poems in there that maybe are quieter or different um, that that they'll enjoy. But yeah, it's. You want to sell books, you want to get books in people's hands. Um, and the money's not bad either, but you know, it's not, it's not what I'm going to make a living off of for the right. most part. Um, you know, there, there are some poets who can, um, I'm not quite there yet. So. Well, I think that's a great transition though, because the reason I initially reached out to you is I saw something you posted on Facebook about taking the leap out of the traditional kind of working environment into you're going to, I think, mod podge together a bunch of different things to make a living. Um, but I, I think if I understood that post correctly, you would like to make poetry a bigger slice of the pie in terms of income. So this is a great segue. Talk to me about this juncture you're at in your life. Yeah, it's an interesting place. I, I've been running a nonprofit, the Nebraska Writers Collective, for about 12 years. Started as a volunteer job, but for the last six, seven years, it's been a full-time job. Um, and I've enjoyed it, but you know, I've got another year and a half as state poet. And if I'm ever going to make it as a writer, now is probably the time I have to at least try. So um, I've got enough saved up that I could work, you know, even if things are a total failure, I can make it a few months um, just writing 
uh, editing, sending things out to magazines, but hopefully um, I'm also trying to pick up jobs, uh, you know, work doing readings, leading writing workshops. Um, and then of course, selling books, uh, also applying for grants and fellowships and things like that to see how long I can extend things. And otherwise, uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, but yeah, it's, a, it's, it's very much a leap of faith. And I hope I can in an ideal world, I'll, I'll luck into something in a way of living that uh, provides enough income that I can keep doing this indefinitely. Um, but at the very least, you know, I hope I can make it as long as I can and see how it goes. Because um, ultimately, you know, the 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 nonprofit job, though, I love the nonprofit, I love the work. Every year it kind of took up more and more of my brain space, uh, leaving less and less for the writing, for the publishing, for the editing. Um, so at the very least, I, I look forward to um, over the next few months, going back and editing poems, putting maybe some more book collections together that I can look for publication, send things out to magazines for publication, you know, do all the writing work that uh, I'm not doing as much because I'm yeah. still I'm on a schedule where I make myself write on a weekly basis, start something new. But, you know, mostly that means I've got first and second drafts in a notebook that need to be uh, polished. <laughs> so yeah. this is the time to get on that and see what I can make of it. Yeah. Yeah, I understand where you're coming from. It's the I'm I'm in the midst of that journey myself. And I don't even know if it was necessarily the best time to do it. But I do know that I was spending a lot of brain space trying to do other things. And I just realized uh, life is short, It's shorter than it ought to be in some ways. And so if I don't make this bet on myself right now, uh, I will regret it at some point. Uh, and I may fail. Mm -hmm. It's a really scary reality. I think the last couple of weeks, uh, I felt the weight of it a little bit more as I see like there's still no income coming in. I'm still in the trying to create income phase of this. And it's been uh, just about eight months for me. I think I expected it to be a bit quicker, but I like what you said about kind of betting on yourself. And I'm, I'm interested to stay there for a little while because that's the mindset. I think that's the real gem here. If you can convey your mindset about this moment, in, in where you're at, your fears, as well as your excitement, because it takes, I think, a healthy but driven ego to do what you're doing. Yeah, there, there's definitely apprehension. I mean, I've got a wife, I've got two kids, my wife uh, teaches at UNO, um, thankfully, so we've got, you know, some some income coming in, but not as much as you should have from a job like that. As, no, <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Not fair. Um, but you know, it's, it, there's at least something coming in. And like I said, I've been saving up uh, some to, to give a, a little bit of a cushion. And, you know, it's, it's far from, far from a guarantee. It's like, uh, yeah, I'm going to make it as a poet. Oh, good luck. I mean, realistically, there, you know, even, you know, even Billy Collins has a day job. He still teaches. Um, mm -hmm. Well, even though he's one of the best-selling poets uh, in the country, if not the best-selling at this point, who knows? It's not the smartest move um, if you go purely by intelligence. But again, 
you just got to try. I, I think if I'm ever going to try it, now's the time and I'll see what happens. I, I, I think even though I, odds are I'll be looking for work in a year or, you know, hopefully longer, but um, it, it's something that I, I don't want to just be regretting. Um, not trying at a point where it made sense to at least try it. So yeah. yeah, I wish I had a great answer of like, yes, this is the plan. This is the roadmap. You know, we're writers. There is no roadmap. Uh, yeah. there, like, other than uh, do throw everything at the wall and hope uh, something sticks and takes off. So. Absolutely. I, I, it is such a terrifying thing to, to, to throw all those things at the wall and see again and again, like they're not sticking or when something does stick, it's not as lucrative as you might've hoped. Like you're like, Oh, people really love this, but it takes a ton of time to do it just things like writing a newsletter. I actually enjoy the process of writing a newsletter to write something quality that they want to read is really hard. And I don't think people understand quite how difficult those things are. So you, you replace maybe something else that was taking up a ton of mental energy, like your nonprofit, like the, the rental houses that I was accumulating and you replace it with something else. So that is part of this challenge is if you're going to go into the place where Matt is at, expect that something else is going to take up that time and that mental energy, but it gives you this benefit, right? You're, you're able to write some new poems about some new fears and some new excitement and some new hopes. Uh, how has that affected the work that you're producing right now? For me, it just gives me a little bit more, gosh, what is, I don't, I don't know what the right word is actually. Um, I, I don't think the writing has changed direction yet it's just kind of my process of writing a new at least one new poem every week and it'll be based on you know just something that prompts a poem that week um Mm -hmm. and i think the biggest change so i mean we're only three weeks in but the biggest change has just been i've written a lot more i've been Mm -hmm. writing you know two or three poems a week over this time and it for me, it takes a little bit more time and space before I think I'll really see any kind of significant changes in writing about the the process of where I'm in right now. Um, it's mostly been just getting around the state a little bit more. I've you know mm-hmm. I've already had uh, a a couple trips out to Western Nebraska, um, and that's been you know, great for the time, great for just the headspace of being able to do that. And, you know, I, I think there's a certain amount of freedom that will fit into the poems um, because now I'm not, uh, you know, driving and worried about what emails are coming in. <laughs> um, you know, not that, you know, not that running a nonprofit is a life and death uh got to get back to everything any second but sometimes it kind of feels that way um you know just with a lot of uh, a lot of things clamoring for my attention that's much more on now the things clamoring from my attention are more you know oh that's a turtle in the road um maybe (laughs) i that was kind of cool to see maybe i should pull over and write about that (laughs) yeah yeah um 
Yeah, so it, it's just that little bit of extra freedom, which I think will come across in the writing. Um, but it kind of, yeah, uh, I'm kind of interested to see where it goes and don't exactly know where it's going yet. Yeah. Now, when you when you take a trip out, you have collections of your book, you're sitting down with new audiences, maybe in Scott's Bluff or somewhere out there, and you're you're forging new connections. One of the things that is really interesting to me, it's it's something I failed at, but you are deeply woven into the fabric of the especially the Omaha and Lincoln writers community. I would I would be shocked if you didn't know 90% of everybody who's seriously working at being a writer in in this community and I've never really dived dove into it before so I'm like on the outskirts of the community talk to me about how that has benefited you and if there are any unseen consequences of being as involved in the community you know I I think the the best part is just uh, you know, this is another reason um, the job could be a little bit difficult at times is just because I don't have the time to be out there supporting other writers um, with with so, so many work demands. So now one thing I really look forward to that I haven't jumped into as much yet. I want to take a little time this summer with my family, but, um, you know, one thing I miss is being able to get out there and just not be out there to do readings and to get my work out, but to really get out there and hear the other writers and, and support them and buy their books. I I think that's important to the community. It's what got me where I am now is just, you know, years going to the Nebraska book festival and just listening to everybody, not because I, you know, I, you know, didn't have any time on stage or anything like that. So it is, it's pretty phenomenal to be able to be out there and just, you know, sit quietly at the back of the room um, and, and take things in. It's important to be supporting other writers. And it, it's kind of, you know, wild that I was able to do that as a younger writer, um, as an up and coming writer, but then it gets harder as I've kind of got a certain amount of establishment just because because of the time constraints and so many different things um but yeah i I can't really see a downside because i think if you're out there supporting other writers you know they'll you know they're 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 more inclined to support you too um and so it's it's being out there putting on events uh, going to events that i'm not putting on but just finding ways to support uh, other writers, both up and coming and established. And I think one of the funnest things is when I get a chance to, um, you know, put when I'm putting on, when I've been putting on events and doing that combination of, you know, the up and coming writers and introducing people, um, and just, you know, knowing who's out there so that you can make those introductions of people who I think will, get along together or respect each other's work, um, that sort of thing. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And I, I really look forward to being able to do more. Connections are something that's really important to you right now. And part of that is understanding that a person becomes not just a person, but also a gateway to something else. I have always felt really uncomfortable with that aspect of what we're doing. Uh, I don't like thinking about 
oh, how am I going to use this person, even the language, to get to this place? Um, I've had podcast guests that are really valuable to me, and I'm, I'm talking about them like they're objects. How much of that mindset do you find factors into what you're doing? And are there tricks or tips that you have about um, keeping people human, but still understanding their you know, value for, for your career? Yeah, it, it is. It, it is something that I, I don't let myself focus on, but be aware of. Um, I, 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 you know, it goes to my whole reasons for writing and how I write and what I write about that. It's gotta be about truth. You know, it's gotta be about authenticity in the writing and what I'm putting, you know, not factuality, but truth. Um, and, and I think, I have to consider that with with listeners, with readers uh, and others, too. You know, I, I think I'll be honest with people and ask, you know, journalists or others with with things that can help if, you know, hey, I'm doing this event. Can you help me with this? Um, and I try not to. um ask more of people uh, than I think I will get excited. You know, I've got a new book about Disneyland and, um, you know, Disneyland poems, and I'm trying to get that into the hands of people connected with Disney and with, uh, uh, you know, fan groups and things like that. But, you know, you know, you just got to be open. You just got to be honest. It's not like anything too complicated, I think, at, at least in the way that I'm approaching it that I would love to impress as many people as I can. And, you know, if it's a choice between um, impressing somebody on the street and some, you know, Disney celebrity, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I hope for the Disney celebrity, but, you know, you know, if you overlook anybody who you don't know exactly who they are, you never know, they might be the best person for you. Um and so I try not to worry too much about that. I try not to yeah. focus too much about that. But, you know, when I reach out to folks, be honest in where I'm going with it, too. You know, you've got all kinds of poet podcast guests who could help you out maybe in your own career. And that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's what everybody's doing. The, the, mm -hmm. it's, it's, not a, it's not a terrible thing. We just have to be our authentic self with um, who are promoting our own writing and not let that be the forefront um, necessarily. But, you know, it, I, I think it's, it's just about being honest with, with what we're doing and not sneaky. I'm no marketer. I mean, I, I appreciate you saying that I'm doing things right in certain ways, uh, but that's not the part that comes natural. No. You know, in the ideal world, we as writers would be able to just do the damn writing <laughs> I know. Um, and, and have, have it get out there. Um, yeah. But it's not a perfect world. So, you know, we figured out this best we can and, you know, try not to be jerks. So, yay. Yeah. I, um, so I went to grad school in Spokane, Washington, and uh, one of my professors was John Keeble. Um, and he's not a well-known novelist, uh, but he's a great novelist he went to school with Raymond Carver uh, and wrote the foreword or Carver wrote the foreword to John's first book. 
uh, I bought the book and saw that Raymond Carver had uh, written the like introduction to it. And I immediately went to John on my first opportunity. And I was like, what was it like to meet Raymond Carver? That must have been so cool. Like Chris Farley on that, that stupid sketch on Saturday Night Live. You know, like, <laughs> must have been so cool to meet him. You know, <laughs> I was I, I like in retrospect, so embarrassed at what I had done. But like my my excitement, my overwhelm to like get this close to a literary giant of mine. I think I do that in my life. I really do think I do that too much. And um, <laughs> you just recognize, hey, this person can give you access. I wonder, has there been a time before when you've had an opportunity to send maybe a batch of poems to a journal that uh, you felt like was a reach? And if you could you know, get it directly in the hands of an editor, it would make all the difference. Yeah, I, you know, everything's a reach. Uh, yeah, when I send poems out to magazines, I'll send them out to the rational choices and I'll send some, you know, once or twice a year to poetry magazine because you just never know. Um, I, I think if you're not reaching above your what you see as your weight class, you'll you'll just stay at the same level. Um, I've sent so many things out that I didn't think I had a chance at. And, you know, a lot of times you get that rejection letter, but more often than I would have guessed, um, I've, I've had some amazing acceptances, you know, in sending things in for a push cart prize. Um, you know, you got a one in 9,000 chance of success, but, you know, I, I hit it once. And, you know, with other, you know, anthologies that I think were pretty heavy hitters that I've gotten into and um you just gotta even if you don't believe in yourself uh, believe in your work as having a chance and sending to these things and you know with the the Disneyland manuscript I've sent notes to the head of Disney you know the head of Disney parks or the you know the the person running Disneyland because why not? You know, I didn't get anything back from them or anything like that. But you, you really, you just got to, you, you got to hit towards the things that could benefit your career, whether you've got a good chance or not, who knows, you know, one in 9,000 chance is still a one in 9,000 chance. And, you know, I've, I bought lottery tickets where I've got a one in like 200,000 chance. And, yeah. you know, you still do these things. And I, and I think you, you got to, cause odds don't decide anything, you know, cause we don't know the true value or of our work. We don't know who it's going to resonate with or who it's mm -hmm. not. So I, I, it's, again, it's, it's the whole throw it at the wall constantly if we only go with what we know we're going to get we're not going to get very far um we got to be open to chance we got to be open to luck we got to be open to these random connections that you know we believe our work has the value of reaching um not every time not even a multiple amounts of the time but it's it's just worth it because you get these wild successes that way that keep you going it's re finding these people that you reach it's um you know i had a, a poem 
in the New York Times because they had a, a Thanksgiving spread a few years ago where they asked for state poets or poet laureates work. And so, you know, I got in there and I made a few connections that way and had a poem later that I thought, you know, this might resonate with these folks and sent it and got, you know, some really good success that way. You use the connections you have, just don't be annoying um, and try for new things and, and mostly believe your work has worth whether everybody has the time for it or is able to do much with it at any given time, you know, you, you never know. You don't know where other people at are at, how much they're able to give to your work, but you know, you just got to try. I really enjoy everything you're saying um, in terms of the, the way that you think about the people that you've connected to. It's, it's really authentic and you can tell that you're not scheming just in the fact that even, you know, trying to, process through how you do what you do. It's, it's just this kind of happening organically for you. And I think that that is a good way to approach it. As long as you're not me and you're constantly thinking about how other people could be useful for you to just climb up some, you know, pyramid of stairs. <laughs> so uh, one thing that you've said a couple of times, and I want to speak it to you as much as I want the listeners to hear it is um, your work itself defies odds and so the reason you're having these wins is because you've put so much time and so much energy into writing really damn good poems so it's not just a one in nine thousand chance to get a push cart for you if i submitted the poem that i workshopped back in 2003 that would be a one in nine thousand <laughs> actually way worse than that you see what i'm saying is is that you're doing so much that is setting you up to have the successes that you are having and it it, it shrinks the odds hugely there's really only a couple dozen people who are submitting to that that for that award um, that are in serious consideration and you've worked your butt off to get to that place yeah i, I mean the, the best, the, the part for me is that I just love the process of writing. I love writing. I love what it tells me about the world. I love what it does for me psychologically and spiritually. It's really all about the writing and then figuring it out from, from there. And, you know, having loved writing for, you know, 30, 40 years, um, you know, hopefully you've done a few things right and made a few good connections. Um, but it, that's where it all comes down to is just the love of this weird process that if I was winning, was not winning awards, was not publishing books, I'd still be doing writing because it, it is so beneficial to me as a person um, that you know, I'm lucky that it has taken off and that the work I've done has made uh, made things better, made the writing better over years that I'm continuing to learn and and all that. But it's yeah. again, I'd, I, <laughs> I, I just wish it was just about the writing and that that somebody else was doing the marketing or something. But, uh, you know, you do what you can this podcast exists, the reluctant bookmarker. You're looking at a guy who is like, there's no other choice for me. I have no choice but to market because no one is going to do it for me. And if I pay someone, they're going to do a really crappy job anyway. So it's a 
awful catch 22. I wasn't built to do this, but I got to figure it out first where the listeners can find you. Uh, and then give me a little pitch for your most recent collection of poems. Yeah. Folks can find me, uh, at matt.midverse.com, uh, as well as, you know, um, on Facebook, uh, Nebraska state poet, Matt Mason, um, you can find my book anywhere that books are found, uh, you know, or order them through your local independent bookseller. And my latest book uh, just came out a few months ago. It's called uh, At the Corner of Fantasy in Maine, uh, Disneyland, Midlife, and Churros. And it's an entire book basically set in Disneyland, though, as I worked on the book, found it had less and less to do with Disneyland itself and and more to do about just hitting midlife and uh, the connect, you know, what what kind of lessons we learn at that point when we find ourselves obsessed with some bizarre thing. It's usually not so much about the bizarre thing, but about ourselves and the connections we've made through our lives. And so it's it's a book I just love. Uh, you know, it's on the surface. It sounds like, oh, it's a book about Disneyland. You know, it's like a piece of candy. It's like, no, it's actually got a lot going on. And I'm really proud of how the whole project turned out. Sounds it sounds amazing. I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, I will link to all of those various places in the show notes for anybody who wants to pick up a copy of the book. And it was a pleasure talking to you. So thank you for giving me some time today. Hey, great talking to you too. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a big favor right now. Click on the follow button in whatever podcast app you're listening on. That way you'll get notifications every time I drop a new episode. And if you still can't get enough, you can go to the show notes, click the link for my newsletter, and sign up today. I'll give you one to two interesting pieces of content every single month that you won't hear on the podcast or find laying around on the internet.